Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 123, Part 1, My Burb of the Century 2023. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Mueupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history it is nearly the end of another year, which means here in Aotearoa, it is time for the most important election of the political calendar. The Bird of the Year. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll know what this is about. But for those that don't, Bird of the Year is an annual vote run by the conservation organisation Forest and Bird. It's quite a contentious vote, but thankfully you don't have to pick just one. You get to rank your top five birds from the selection offered. And even better, it's an online vote, so even if you're not based in New Zealand, you can still have your say. And at the end, whichever bird gets the most votes is given the illustrious title of Bird of the Year. This time around though, it is an extra special election. Forest and Bird was founded in 1923, making this year their 100th birthday. Hooray! To celebrate, they're calling Bird of the Year the Bird of the Century, and added a few more contenders, all of whom are extinct. Some of them you've probably heard of, like the Huia, and others you probably haven't. I've chosen not one, but two of these lesser-known extinct birds to teach you about. And in addition to two birds, we're going to have two hosts. I thought it might be good to bring in some extra scientific knowledge, if you will. 
So I invited my partner, Lily, to come on and add their insights into avians and ecology as well. I've split our chat into two episodes, with one bird in each, both releasing on the same day. You're currently listening to part one. So when you finish this episode, there's another already available waiting for you. Enjoy. Kia ora, Lily. Thank you for coming on to talk about... Um, Lily's waving, but you can't see that. Um, <laughs> but do you want to talk about why... Because you've been on a Patreon episode before, but this is actually going to go out in the main feed. Mm, yeah, I also was... I don't think I was even done with school the last time I was on this. No, so I don't think you were. I'm, I'm kind of glad that that went out to a smaller group of people, because I'm sure if I went back and listened to it, I'd be like, what is this kid talking about? What a fool. What an ignoramus. Um, so do you want to, I, I guess, um, because I've brought you on the Bird of the Year episode, or sorry, rather, Bird of the Century Whoa. it is this year, do you want to talk about your... I guess your qualifications, why have I brought you you on in particular? Well, other than, the fact, other than that, the fact that I live in your house with you. Yeah, that you're my um. partner and you're easy <laughs> for me to access. But it's not because of that necessarily. You do actually have qualifications and knowledge that is relevant. Yeah, so I'm an ecologist, um, which if you're not familiar with that, that is essentially the study of ecosystems. So it's a subset of biology. I studied mostly forest systems, so focused on trees and woody vegetation back in Tennessee in the United States. And then I worked on some bird stuff for a while, um, breeding birds and things. Um, I've studied a fair amount of reptile and amphibian and bird taxonomy and and, uh, evolution and anatomy and things like that. And uh, I did my master's at the Victoria University of Wellington on spotted skinks and just general conservation ecology um, two years ago now. And yeah, now I work as an ecologist. So a lot of my job is going out and looking at ecosystems and figuring out uh, what threats they face and how to manage those. Yeah. So you're actually a, a, a ecology person. You know lots of things about a variety of native species that I don't know. Mm. Um, I'm trying to catch up. You know, I've, I've been in New Zealand for... Uh, it'll be four years in January, mm. so uh, it's been a bit of a, a catch-up to um, start over on all sorts of species that I've never encountered before, um, and most of the species I have encountered before simply are not here, so yes. it's been a bit of a learning curve, but I'm doing my best. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to talk about, um, or I, I guess I'm going to somewhat teach you about some we'll see about a that. bird you you know a lot of stuff that i the, don't what the birds are is going to be a surprise so this is a pop quiz for me okay sure <laughs> we have talked about them so i don't remember um okay <laughs> adhd coming in hot <laughs> <laughs> um so this is going to be um i'm i don't know yet whether i'm going to split the episodes up or keep them all as one big one okay um but we are going to talk about two birds ultimately mm. um the first one we're going to talk about is the uh, matu hituhi um, also called the Tom Thumb Bird. Um, I put that in there because I thought that was fun. I'm going to go ahead and guess it's something in, in Acanthaceae today because those are all really tiny. Um, maybe. I have it written down here, but okay. I don't know how that translates to how it sounds. Okay. <laughs> um, it is the bush wren. Yes, that um, is in Acanthaceae okay. today. They're yeah. related to Titipunamu. Yes, so we will get into that um, a bit as well. So it's Xenicus longipes. Mm-hmm. Longipes? Mm-hmm. that's one of the species anyway there's actually 
I believe it's three different species or subspecies, mm-hmm. depending on how, mm-hmm. who you ask and how they classify mm-hmm. it. The trouble with Latin is it's a dead language, so everyone you can ask six different specialists and get six different ways to say it. Probably. Exactly. Um, so, uh, as I will have mentioned at the top of this episode, um, Bird of the Year is now Bird of the Century this year because Forest and Bird are 100 years old um, this year. And so because of that, they've opened up some of the categories to birds that are no longer around, um, that are extinct. So um, in past episodes of this, we've talked about um, the New Zealand threat classification of the variety of birds. So things like... Um, or what are they? There's um, nationally, critically endangered, nationally... So it goes not threatened, at risk, re- naturally uncommon, at risk relict, at risk recovering, at risk declining, threatened nationally vulnerable, threatened nationally endangered, threatened nationally critical, and then extinct. Yeah, so that, that last one is what both of these birds that we're going to talk about are. These are extinct, they're no longer um, around, which is really actually quite depressing because when i was researching them i was like man this is really cool these Mm. these things are really interesting Mm. and then you realize you're never going to Mm -hmm. see these ever again but yeah so in terms of the nztcs these guys are extinct so they're not around anymore there is some wiggle room i mean these guys are they're gone but there is some some wiggle room globally sometimes things will be extinct in the wild before they cease to exist completely Mm. um so there may be only some left in captivity. That was the case with the the Tasmanian tiger. There's also functionally extinct. So the kakapo is a little bit in that category. Mm. Not formally, I don't think. But there's so few of them that they no longer uh, meaningfully contribute to the function of an ecosystem. Um, and that's when we talk about things like extinction debt. Like they're still around, but they're on their way out. As part of that, um, these are also endemic to New Zealand. So there's no other way that these... Um, uh, say locally extinct in New Zealand um, if they're extinct in New Zealand they're extinct everywhere there's none left at all so we're going to go through um, if you've listened to these sorts of episodes in the past you know vaguely the sort of things that we talk about what do they look like what do they sound like what do they eat that sort of stuff um, but some of the categories we're going to change or I have changed slightly because um, of course we can't really talk about say the threats and research that is being done on these animals because in theory they don't really have any threats anymore and there isn't really any research being done into them Mm. in terms of you know trying to learn more about them because that's quite severely limited in what we can actually learn i will say though with threats most of the things that have gone extinct in new zealand have a lot of commonalities absolutely and this is the same their, their behavior particularly reproductive behaviors is usually the achilles heel of these species yeah so it's the same it's it's always a big theme it's always the same things so the reason that these guys went extinct is virtually the same as every other problem that honestly is with going things on. like birds in new zealand i feel like almost all of them the ones that went extinct is because they lay their eggs on the ground like or too close to the ground you know that's why that's why tak are not doing well as well yeah. um a lot of shorebirds if you lay your eggs on the ground and you live on an island Bad yep. news when you when you get rats yep. showing up yep. globally throughout the Pacific, yeah. Or you're stinky if you're kakapo mm, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, double whammy for those guys. Yeah. Um, so let's crack into what do they look like? Um, as you mentioned earlier, um, they are related to Titiponamu, the rifleman. Um, so they look, if you are aware of what those look like, it's pretty similar. 
Um, so they're very, very small. They're about 9 centimeters in length, and they're 16 grams in weight. So very small. They have a short tail, or I say it had a short tail, um, and is rarely seen flying. They prefer to sort of perch and then jump or sort of do f- short flights between mm-hmm. um, various bits. Something you'll notice with Titiponamu, and probably these guys had this as well, short broad wings in the avian world um, are for achieving lift quickly but not covering distance. Mm. So it's more of a kind of whoa, get out of here strategy or a hop around strategy. You're not trying to cover any distance. It's the opposite of something like seabirds with long thin wings that are bad at taking off but good at staying in the air for a long time. Yeah. So you might be able to um, hop out of the way, um, but if you've got something in pursuit, you're not carrying any distance. (laughs) Um, You might get up into a tree and then have nowhere else to go. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So they have long feet and toes um, with olive green or brown um, on their head, um, which is sometimes called a brown cap um, as well, which is kind of fun. Um, And they also have a bit of um, olive green on their back as well. Um, They have white um, sort of eyebrows. You know, they're not eyebrows, but they're the plumage around their mm. eyebrow area mm-hmm. um, is white mm-hmm. and they have a grey chest with a pale chin and there's also some dull sort of yellow feathers some dull yellow feathers on um, the flank they're faux leather feathers 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 yeah <laughs> yeah um and there isn't a huge amount of difference between the male and the female. The female is a little bit more brown than the male, um, but otherwise they look pretty much the same. Again, similar to Titiponamu. Yep, exactly. The plumage does change slightly depending on um, the species. Um, so, for example, ones found in the in Stewart Island are, more, are a bit more variable in their appearance. Um, so they had a their eyebrow stripe is not as prominent or it doesn't exist um, in certain individuals and they can range more from um, green to brown a bit more on the back so the Mm. variation on the back is a bit the rock wren which i think is in this same family as well and still extant thankfully they have that cream eyebrow so if you want to find a picture of the rock wren that's what that looks like. very similar yeah um and the North Island birds were also found to have uh, blue bits on the sides of their necks uh, and chest, and the yellow on their flank was a little bit brighter. So, um, so again, d- slightly mm. dependent on sort of the mm. species slash subspecies. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, not a huge amount of variation between the. Mm-hmm. That blue um, is really interesting because that's a pretty complicated color for nature to produce. Mm. Typically, that has to come from anthocyanins in the diet. Mm. So a lot of times, if you have birds with blue on them particularly if that's for males or part of breeding plumage, it's what's called an honest signal, which is Mm. to say they can only produce that impressive coloring if they've been eating well. Yeah. So that could have been... Could have been um, something... Sadly, we'll never know. But yeah, Yeah. that's often how blue works in birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So as we've alluded to a few times already... um, there is three different subspecies um, of, or was three different subspecies of the bush wren, which was the North Island, South Island, and uh, Steed's bush wren. Um, which I don't know who Steed was. What did he do? To why he got a bush, bush wren? wren. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he he got his own one apparently. Um, and in total, there are seven species um, in the New Zealand wren family, um, with the bush wren being the most ancient of these so it's the um oldest branch of the wren family 
Um, a basil clade. A basil clade, yes, but... Um, basil with an A, not an I. No. Not basil. Not, not basil. <laughs> no, basil, yeah, as in base. Um, the only surviving members of this family, as we mentioned earlier, are the Rifleman, or the Titiponamu, um, and the Rock rock Wren, or the Piwowo. Um, the Rock Wren being uh, the more closely related of the two um, to the Bush Wren. Um, they're, they're very poor flyers. They really hop around most of the time. Yeah, so they're very um, similar in both appearance and behavior, mm. apparently. Mm-hmm. So, And they're not doing so hot. I don't know their status off the top of my head, but they're not pretty limited. Good. They're an alpine species. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. South Island only, I'm like 99% sure. Yeah, well, that's where most of the alpine stuff is, I guess, isn't yeah. it? So that would make sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something I also normally do on these episodes is um, New Zealand Brides Online has, of course, recordings of the calls of all of these um, animals. Um, however, um, in the case of the bush wren um, being extinct, we don't have that it's not that actually this was impossible this is actually um the bush wren actually went extinct fairly recently um as we'll get to a bit later um but for some reason i guess no recordings well the other i mean the two guys that are alive still in this family they they are not singers per se they Mm. vocalize really just to signal and communicate to each other Mm. um and i don't know what the rock wren sounds like but the titiponamu um, people over about 45 and 50 usually cannot hear it anymore. Yeah, they're so I struggle, tiny, their, their I calls are bit, so yeah. um, high-pitched. Um, it's really just like kind of like a almost noise. Yeah. Um, so there's not necessarily a lot to record, even if you have the opportunity. They <laughs> don't true. sing in the way that we would expect songbirds to. Yeah, because I remember we were in, I think it was in Zealandia, mm. and you could hear them as mm-hmm. we were walking down a path. And I had to really concentrate to hear them, mm. but you picked up on it a lot quicker than I did. That's a combination um, of practice and just different hearing, I think. Well, yeah, my hearing's munted, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> None of your senses are stellar, I'll be honest. No, they're not. Um, <laughs> no, too much listening to loud music, um, mm. that one, apparently. So, yeah, but we've got people who have um, obviously have heard these um, calls and described them, which mm-hmm. is not really... When you when you read There's people... a poetic tragedy to that. Uh, yeah. Um, but also it's really hard to describe yes, it is. bird calls. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that the that New Zealand Birds Online described it was they have a subdued trill, a fast rasp, or a loud quote-unquote seep, sometimes made rapidly, um, repeated rapidly, sorry. That seep, that sounds more like what the titipanama mm. does to me. Yeah. The rasping, a lot of small birds that travel in mixed flocks do a version of psh, 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 in some mm. way. Um, that's kind of like a interspecies, hey, come check this out sort of thing they'll yeah. do if they you know see a predator coming. Or sometimes if you're walking through the bush, particularly if you're in North America or Europe, um, you may cause a ruckus and hear a lot of psh, 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 as birds come to kind of check you out and things so it may be something like that yep yeah could be um they do have well it says here they do have a loud cheep as an Mm -hmm. alarm call um and mated peers would make soft calls back and forth to each other as well um so there was there's a lot of what seems to be a lot of what they were doing is they would hang out in these mated peers and then call to each other um which to me also sound quite similar to the martita the fern bird does a Mm. lot of that as well they will call back to each other quite Mm -hmm. often the titipanamu they I 
don't have a strong sense of how much time they spend together outside of breeding season. I think they're more loosely organized, but the pairs really stick together during breeding season. There's a lot of nuptial feeding and courtship mm-hmm. feeding, which is when the male brings snacks to the female and they work quite closely together on the nest and the, the chicks and everything. Mm. Um, and they're really just, yeah, constantly beep, beep, beep at each other. Yeah. What a great segue to what do they eat, which TZ Pernam, I'm pretty sure it's the same. I would assume rock reading is also the same. Is um, They're all insectivores. Yeah, tiny bugs. Tiny <laughs> bugs, yeah. So moths, flies, beetles, spiders, um, lots of different larvae of all of those, um, all of those animals as well. And they do um, a lot of... Um, the way that they find all these things is by probing crevices in um, yeah. trees and stuff and also gleaning from them. I was about to say, I was going to um, guess that they glean. Which I was going to mm-hmm. ask you, do you want to explain a bit about what that actually is and what that means? Um, it's not far off what you said about kind of probing crevices, but a lot of times um, there are many birds all over the world that are very small and kind of acrobatic and they basically just use a tree as a, a 3D uh, jungle gym obstacle course and they're looking for teeny tiny bugs um, like little mites and ants and little bitty things like that um, on the undersides of branches and amongst leaves and stuff so they sort of just um, velcro themselves under the tree and just tootle around um, going every which way looking for teeny tiny snacks which is fun um, so it's sort of just I guess the bird version of grazing almost where they're just covering an area and picking up what they can find yeah, so that's um. So I thought that was quite cool. Mm. They're just crawling around. Yeah, all it's over fun the to place watch. And, mm-hmm. um, the brown creeper, up. both the one in New Zealand, which I think is PPP. Um, I think so. Yeah, and the completely unrelated but vaguely similar looking brown creeper in North America. Um, they're nut hatches. If you're familiar with those, they do the same thing where they just all yep. over the place. Yeah, <laughs> very entertaining to watch. Nice. Um, so where do they live? Um, well, as you can probably guess from at least two of the subspecies, they live in the North and South Islands, um, as you might expect, along with Carpety Island, Stewart Island, and three uh, the three South Cape Islands, which are actually just off the coast of Rakiura, um, Stewart Island, on the southwestern coast um, there as well. Um, in saying that, there's not many reported sightings in the North Island. Um, mostly where they were found were in Te Uruwera on the east coast, um, Taupo in the central um, area of the North Island, and the Rimatakas, um, which are sort of southern, central-ish. Those um, are kind of just some of the, the remaining strongholds of extensive forest yeah it's not necessarily they may have had a much wider distribution before human arrival before people started writing down where they were yeah yeah exactly so that's not necessarily indicative of the actual range Mm. more probably indicative of those areas as you say are some of the more well protected and older forests Mm. in new zealand that are still around um so kind of makes sense that they're probably found in those areas. Mm. There's a lot of things that are doing pretty well in the Rimantakas that are almost gone from the rest of the North Island. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so within those areas, the kind of habitat that they were hanging out in was um, forest and scrub in mountainous areas. Um, so they like it quite quite hilly. Um, most sightings um, recorded in the South Island were actually in beech forest um, and shrubland in subalpine areas, as well as podocarp forest in Fiordland uh, and Stewart Island, which I guess is all, all kind of makes sense mm. um, for, again, the kind of areas that they were being found in. In terms of, I guess normally we'd talk about how many individuals are left in terms of their population. 
they're extinct, so there's zero. Um, the last recorded sighting was at Lake Waikari Moana, um, which I believe is also sort of on the east coast of the North Island, mm. uh, and that was in 1955. Mm. Um, there was another in Milford Sound in 1965. Mm. There was another in Arthur's Pass the year after that in 1966, and then another near Nelson in 1968. In terms of their breeding, um, they made spherical nests that had a hole near the top, so you could get in, which I thought was kind of fun. That's fun. Where, um, where did they build them? I don't know if I wrote that down. Oh, nests were often located in damp areas. I wrote that down. Um, um, uh, oh, sorry. No, I did. Well, you, you, sorry, I did write it down. But mm. you. Well, Titipanoma are cavity nesters, but yep. you don't. That doesn't sound like something you'd build in a cavity. Um, you'd you'd be wrong. Did they build them? Because I know some birds, like Tiake, one of the things they'll build a nest in. And I think Kakariki will do this as well. When a tree fern is fallen over and there's just the stump left and it's hollow, there are birds that like to nest in those. Yeah. So that's that's pretty much what it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah. nests would be hidden in the holes of trees or logs um, or could actually be within tree roots or clumps of ferns mm. um, but otherwise in general they would be mm. quite close to the ground yep. so again to what you were saying earlier yep. just like ne- D.A.K. yep if they nest close to the ground uh, it's not super good um, when you're trying to combat things like rats or stoats or that kind of stuff but I thought that was quite cool because Titi Ponamu don't really do that do they they just go into I don't super know what the interior looks like, but they they find really tight little crevices mm. that I mean these are birds the size of a ping pong ball and they still like mm. have to squeeze in there. Um, but I'm not sure what kind of system they build on the inside. A lot of cavity nesters basically just build up a, a bed of fluff. Yeah. Um, rather than making any sort of structure, they really just kind of build a um, a floor up. So that's yeah. that's very interesting that they build a structure in a hollow. Yeah. Um... So they, they do sort of build um, with fluff. They use feathers from other birds, um, as well as fern roots and moss and leaves and all that sort of stuff. Um, but what I thought was quite interesting is that they replace the feathers every time it rains, mm. um, which I'm not really, I guess, because they just get wet and they're not well, as if good they're using If they're using down, down mm. does not keep anything warm because the way down works is by holding air mm. between the phylloplumes, phila, phila that's it. Um, the feathery bits the fluffies yeah so like <laughs> there's the main stem of the feather and then there's the little bitties the little yep. floofs off the side those are phyloplumes mm. um, and if those get wet they stick together and there's no more air to be held so they Doesn't go flat and they don't keep you warm yeah yeah makes sense which is also why you should not wash your wear your down coats in the rain don't do it don't don't do it don't wear your puffer jackets in the rain they're don't. not designed for that no um, and a good raincoat is cheaper than a puffer jacket that is, that is true. Um, I can't say that I've looked into the price of puffer jackets in over a decade. Um, a good raincoat is cheaper than a down coat. Um, anyway. Anyway. So off topic. Just a weird personal vendetta of mine. So we don't know too much about like their eggs and that sort of thing, but we do know that two or three eggs would be laid uh, at the end of the year in November or December. And the care of those chicks would then be shared between the parents. Um, which again I think is quite similar to Titi Ponamu as well Mm -hmm. yeah Um, in terms of random behaviour they're often found in pairs or small family groups Mm -hmm. so the parents and the children Mm -hmm. again like Titi Ponamu the the offspring will usually stay and sometimes they'll even stick around to help raise the next clutch Mm. which is fun yeah 
Um, so they're very territorial um, during breeding season. Um, and on the mainland, they were, report- they were reported to feed in the branches of trees, um, whereas Titipunamu um, tend to feed around the trunks, apparently. So instead of on the trunks, they were feeding in the branches. Mm. Um, I don't really know why that is. That might be that um, interesting sort of niche thing. Yeah. That, you know, um, I don't know how you got taught it in school, but the way that we got taught it in school was with harakeke, um, with the notches and the um, holes um, in terms of, like, uh, one species of caterpillar would eat the leaves by eating on the edges. mm and another species of caterpillar would scrape a hole mm-hmm. through the middle. And so because of that, their um, their niches are different and therefore they're not competing mm. with each other. I'm pretty sure the term is niche stratification. Sure. But I'm yeah. not that... I may be inventing that. <laughs> sure. um, we, can just, we can just say... But yeah, that, that's, that is common, especially ecosystems that are focused around large trees. Mm. Um, like you get that with, with redwoods and things, is you'll have different birds specialize gleaning in different areas or, mm. or feeding in different areas of the tree so that they're not competing with each other yeah yeah so, so we, back we, in the day when these could have been around at the same time as titiponamu they could have coexisted now whether or not they would have allowed that in breeding system in season i don't True. know because titiponamu are also very spicy mm. in breeding season and they will chase other things away <laughs> yeah it's just that with two species that are extremely similar they eat the same things they're hanging out in the same areas they're using the same um uh, places to to kind of set up nests and things generally you wouldn't think mm. that those would really well, coexist in the same area all that well i guess we're sort of limited on our information about what the range of the bushman was right True. was like because if the last places they existed where alpine areas that could just be a function of where they were able to hold out mm. but if historically that's where they lived i don't think titiponamu go really into alpine areas mm. yeah but i'm not sure i would not um put money on that yeah <laughs> i just i don't think they go high up yeah um yeah so it may have been a geographic stratification play potentially yeah allopatric rather than sympatric yes i do remember that from mm-hmm. high school biology mm-hmm. <laughs> um so on islands around uh Rakiura, um they would stick to low dense vegetation and spend a lot of time on the ground um apparently even entering the burrows of petrels which i thought was everybody's kind of in those petrol burrows yeah it, the gang's all here <laughs> got everybody in there um because I think Tuatara also yeah. have been found and in there. And some species of skinks will go into yeah. to, um, TT burrows. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, yeah we're, all, we're all just hanging out. That is the thing you see commonly <laughs> globally, though, is if there is an ecosystem where something goes to the trouble of digging holes or creating a cavity, mm. other things are very keen to jump on that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think kiwi have been found in burrows with Tuatara as well. Mm. And a few other things, probably. Yeah, toots will dig um, their own burrow, but like, why would you if you don't have to? If, if the hole's already there, <laughs> made by a bigger animal. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said earlier, they would make short, direct flights between branches, being very swift and energetic. Um, while they were doing this, they would also often bob when they landed, um, either with their whole body or just with their head, which I thought was very funny. That's delightful. <laughs> that is absolutely delightful. There's a bird called the American Dipper that mm. is called the Dipper partly because it's the only passerine that is semi-aquatic. 
they dip mm. into the water and they also bob up and down so it's fun i would recommend looking it up on youtube <laughs> absolutely um they're very funny very funny birds amazing but let's bring the mood down let's talk about oh. <laughs> um let's talk about the bush wren's extinction mm. so instead of talking about the threats and things let's talk about how and why it went extinct because um as we said earlier there there it's a pretty big theme if you've listened to other episodes like this you already know what the theme is, mm-hmm. um, but let's talk about it anyway. Um, because one interesting thing about the bush wren is that it was the last endemic um, bird in Aotearoa to go extinct. Is the most recent? Yes, okay. the yeah. most recent. There will probably be more, unfortunately. There but... will probably be more, unfortunately. There is also a slight brackets or caveat mm. um, that it depends on how you count the South Island corker, call, the <gasps> corker. It depends on how you count that. Because if you do count that, then that was the last one that went extinct, depending on... Because it's currently classed as being data deficient, not extinct. Mm. Um, so, technically, the South Island Kōkoko is not extinct. Mm-hmm. However, that very much depends on who you ask. Um, well, we can't confidently say whether or not it is extinct. No. But I've talked to people that say, yeah, they're full of it, and it definitely is extinct. Um I I always feel about things like that, um, that isn't it wonderful there's still a little bit of wilderness left where something like that could be like the fact that it mm. isn't completely off the table gives me a tiny glimmer of hope. Even if they're even if they are extinct, at least there's some some places out there that could still have them because I'm sure a lot of other things are being protected in those places where they are speculated to be yeah so i've i think i've told you this story before but i don't think i've talked about it on the podcast so i'm going to talk about it again um is one of my um workmates went down to the west coast and he was talking to some dock people department conservation department of conservation people down there and they would talk about how people would hear south island kokoko in those areas on the west coast and people would come back and say i found it i heard it it's definitely there Mm. and they're like 99% sure there's none in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but the going theory is apparently that the Tui are replicating mm. the the um, the calls from the Kōkakō, um, which is obviously pretty, which is pretty common that Tui do mm. that. I'm actually pretty sure I heard a tiaki not far around the corner from where we're living yesterday. It's definitely... It was definitely a I've heard No, I've heard that same bird. Oh, I really? Have, yes, because one day I, like, stood up off the couch and was like, what? Uh, and yeah. then I realized, I was like, no, it's not quite right. It's the right melody, but the wrong voice. <laughs> yeah, and I and I had the same thing when I was in holiday on holiday in Palmerston North. Mm. I also heard a tear key, and I asked a, a local um, conservation guy, and he said, maybe, but, like, it's really unlikely. It's more likely that a Tui has just copied a tear key mm-hmm. and come down... Um, from where those are hanging out. There was something else. When we were in at Nui, I think it was, I followed mm. a bird around for about 15, 20 minutes thinking it was a kakariki. And it was a tui yeah. the whole time. And I was really <laughs> mad. So tui are really good at mimicking other species. Um, but I think what what they thought, these guys on the West Coast thought had happened is, because of course if there's no kokoko around, the tui must have passed down through the generations this call to their offspring and so although that species is no longer around anymore the tui are still replicating it because they're passing they're culturally passing that information on to their offspring Mm. which i I thought that was pretty cool there's Um, some really amazing science that has been done on how birds learn mm. songs 
um, particularly birds that mimic things. Mm. Um, great, great deep dive to take. Um, there's a book called, by Tim Burkhead that I cannot remember <laughs> the name of, but it's by Tim Burkhead. And there's a flamingo on the cover. Mm-hmm. And that is, I highly recommend if you'd like to read a, a general overview about how incredible birds are uh, book. That's, that's, it's like, what is it like to be a bird or something like that? Sure. Yeah. I might find it and then put it in the yeah, description. Please so do, that because <laughs> I'm annoyed that I can't remember the title. Um, so yeah, so that's that's um, what they think was going on down there. No one's ever confirmed it. Um, so yeah, so South Island Corkacore technically uh, currently classed as data deficient. But if you do count them as extinct, the last confirmed sighting was in 1967. Mm. That's the last time that they absolutely 100% know that it was definitely a corker. Um, but there was a sighting in 2007 that was accepted as being the last one by the Department of Conservation. So the Department of the, Con- of the Kokako, the South Island Kokako in 2007. Really, that was the last time that. Um, so that one was. A, I a, super didn't know that. Yeah, so that was a bit a bit of contention apparently. So that was when they were a bit like, "Nah, we don't think it is." But later, that doc classified that as a confirmed sighting. <gasps> Oh, that changes everything. That make, <laughs> no, here I was thinking that I hadn't been seen in like 50 years. No. That, that, that very much changes my opinion on the matter. <laughs> yeah, that's super possible then. Huh. Yeah. So Wowee. They, so they might still be around. Yeah. Um, but no yeah, that's much more feasible. No one's had a confirmed sighting. I mean, there's still people seeing Tasmanian tigers and stuff, you know, so. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, but they've all turned out to be not true. Not yeah. Your uncle's actually. ugly dog or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, so the bush wren um, went, uh, or the last confirmed, 100% confirmed sighting was in 1972. Mm. So about 50 years ago, or just over 50 years ago now. And all three species likely went um, extinct roughly within 20 years of each other. So mm. although we obviously don't know exactly when they went extinct, mm-hmm. it would have been around 1972. Were these species species or subspecies? Subspecies, okay. yeah. yeah. So ship rats in particular um, is what got them when they, um, when the rats got down to the South Cape Islands, um, they wiped them out pretty quickly in 1964. That was pretty, um, pretty insane. And actually, what ended up happening was the Wildlife Service, which was the precursor to DOC, um, when they found out that the rats had made it to the South Cape Islands, um, launched an, a desperate attempt mm. to move. Uh, to capture and then move some of the bush wrens. So they managed to get six of them and then move them from um, one of the um, islands and then move them to a different, slightly different island nearby. And that sort of did work for a bit. Were the rats eating the adults or just the eggs and chicks? Um, I don't know if they actually know that. Mm. I couldn't find that information. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you get this, again, extinction debt where... Mm. um, you'll still see the adults flying around and maybe think they're okay. But if they're failing to reproduce every year, there's going to be that, that time lag where however long the adults live, you know, six years or something like that for a bird that size, probably um, mm. they'll, they'll seem fine. And then they'll all just disappear, disappear overnight kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they were taken from um, big South Cape Island Toki Hipa um, to Kaimohu Island um, in 1964 and then Kaimohu Island is where they were last seen in 1972 and no one's mm. ever seen them since or at least confirmed sightings yeah see like that on an island it's like 
there's a limited amount of space where they could be hiding. Yeah. So we know the Stewart Island species in particular survived until at least 1951, um, but that was uh, likely taken out by feral cats, mm. um, oh, yeah. that one. And we also know that all three species of rat, the Kjordi, which is the Pacific rat, um, the Norway and the ship's rats, um, were likely what caused the populations to decline on the mainland, um, with stoats um, also not being a, not hugely contributing, but also not really helping mm. the matter either. Um so yeah, so it was mainly the rats is what did these guys mm-hmm. in. Um, so yeah, so there's probably not a huge, you know, as you say, there's not a, a lot of room that these guys could be potentially living in in terms of like, you know, the islands are quite limited in their mm-hmm. size. So if we were going to find them on those mm-hmm. islands, we probably would have found them by now. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that kind of feeding behavior, assuming it's somewhat similar to the Titipanamu, they cover a lot of ground mm. um, relative to their body size. They yeah. have a decent territory. It's not like a Tuatara where it might sit in the same spot for six months. Yeah. So if they're out there and people are looking for them, you would expect them to encounter them. Yeah. I think, though, on the counter side of that, um, species like Kakapo and Takahe were thought to be extinct for over five decades. Mm, but those and are... they're huge. Yes, but they... <laughs> they yeah, they're not like up in the trees flitting around and going to peep all day either. <laughs> mm, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess they, um, they're more likely to be, at least the adults are more likely to fend for themselves a lot easier than, you know, a tiny bush wren if it comes up against a rat or, or something like that, right? I don't know. We've talked about how spicy stoats are. Mm, you know? Like mustelids can take things down that are much, much, much bigger than them. That's true. Um, that is true. So if yeah, a, if a stoat can take out a kiwi, I'm sure it can take out a takahe. Mm, that's true. Yeah. So probably not a huge amount of hope that these guys are still around, mm. unfortunately. Um, but again, it's all it's all the same culprits that we've seen before, mm-hmm. um, mostly leaning on rats. Um, this time and that's basically all that we know Mm. about bush wrens unfortunately Mm -hmm. Um, because again they're extinct there's not a huge amount that we can learn about them anymore millions of years of evolution gone just gone are there study skins of them around I don't know I couldn't see any pictures of any Mm. so actually I do not know we should look that up on Tip Papa's website. If anyone would have one, they would. They would, yeah. Mm. Or, or our old our old friends, the British Museum. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Get your own tiny birds. Thanks again to my partner, Lily, for coming on and sharing their knowledge. If you want to vote in Bird of the Century, voting opens on the 30th of October and closes on the 12th of November. I've put a link to the Bird of the Century voting page in the show notes. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, you don't need to live in New Zealand to vote. You just need a valid email address. You get to rank five different birds, so get out there and let your voice be heard. Remember, this is part one of our Bird of the Century episodes. So if you want more bird facts, check out the other episode next to this one. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts and sources. 
You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, oki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>